This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Reformed pastor faces many challenges. He represents a minority tradition in North America and in most other places in the world. His church tends to be understaffed and underfunded. Then there is the daunting task of evangelizing his community. On top of that, the surrounding culture seems increasingly hostile to Christianity. Then there are sermons to write and Bible studies for which to prepare, meetings to attend, counseling sessions, and catechism instruction, just to name a few, and the list continues. There is another challenge facing the minister, however. He is often tempted to overlook his own spiritual well-being. The Reverend Dr. John Payne is on campus this week to deliver the annual Dendok Lectures on the 21st Century Pastor and Piety Proclamation and Prayer. Focusing on the spiritual well-being of the 21st century pastor is very much on his heart and mind these days. John is senior pastor and organizer of Christ Church Presbyterian, PCA, in Charleston, South Carolina, where he co-labors with Westminster Seminary graduate Ross Hodges. Before that, he was a PCA pastor near Atlanta. He's a Clemson grad, graduate of RTS, and he studied at New College, Edinburgh, and he's a visiting lecturer in in practical theology at RTS Atlanta. He's convener of the Gospel Reformation Network, editor and contributor to the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary Series, and author and editor of several books, including John Owen on the Lord's Supper and Rediscovering the Beauty of Reformed Worship for the 21st Century. John and his wife Marla live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. They've been married for 19 years and have two children. Hi, John, and welcome to Office Hours. Hey, Scott, it's good to be here. Well, we are glad to have you on campus, and uh, I know the students were edified by your remarks this morning and looking forward to tomorrow and Thursday as well. In your opening comments, you mentioned in passing a little bit about your conversion. So just to let us get to know you a little bit and to help us understand your passion for piety, proclamation, and prayer, tell us a little bit about how the Lord brought you to faith. Sure, I'd love to. So uh, I am a native Californian, grew up in Santa Clara, California. So it's good to be back in my home state here this week. You don't sound exactly like you're from California anymore. (laughs) You've been in the South long enough that you sound just a little bit like you might be from Atlanta or South Carolina. (laughs) Yes, uh, no doubt. My accent has changed a bit. Been there for 28 years now. So yeah, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and catechized in Luther's Shorter Catechism and grew up hearing the gospel proclaimed and word and sacrament and very thankful for my upbringing. However, even as one who grew up in the Lutheran church, went through confirmation, uh, never knew the Lord personally. It was really a mental ascent. We talk about the faith and what it's constituted of. And I had the first two, I had the knowledge, I had the belief that it was true, but not the true devotion and commitment to it. And so it was just after my sophomore year at Clemson University that I was out uh, partying with friends and uh, having way too much to drink that as we walked out to the car, I volunteered to drive. The old story, I was the least intoxicated. So I drove, it was myself and three other friends, and on the way home, I drove off the road going about 50 miles an hour. The car flipped 
several times. The girl in the passenger seat was thrown from the car. So I got out of the car. The car was destroyed. And the person in the back seat, one of our friends, was yelling this girl's name. Where is she? Where is she? And I got out of the car, ran over to her, and she was alive but doing very badly. And all the authorities showed up, and I went off to jail. She went off to the hospital as well as the other two. And it was that night in jail, having just been told that I would likely spend the next 15 to 20 years of my life in prison, that God came to me and the power of his Holy Spirit and gave me a new heart. That night, by his grace, I cried out to him and he radically changed my life. And by the grace of God, the girl ended up being okay. Really, we all should have died, humanly speaking. She most certainly should have, being thrown out of a car going that fast. And uh, she ended up okay. And several years later, contacted me and said that she had been converted by the gospel and had done a little research and was so thankful that she was a part of my conversion experience. It was very moving to receive that email from her a couple of years ago. The other two were fine as well. I had to do some community service after that, and my community service, part of that was sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel in colleges and universities for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So the Lord pushed me into full-time ministry, really, through my conversion. So you were a college athlete. You were a soccer player. I was, yes. Now I'm all old and washed up. uh, (laughs) I watch my son play now. (laughs) You remember playing soccer. That was going to be my next question. So the Lord used this extraordinary circumstance to bring you to faith, and in the providence of God, you ended up being channeled into FCA, and so you got some good mentoring there. And how did you find your way First of all, into the Reformed churches or Presbyterian Mm -hmm. churches, and then from there, how did you become a pastor? I joined what I affectionately call a baptismatic church after (laughs) I was converted. It was a very zealous, loving church just outside of Clemson, and I was rebaptized. I now claim my Lutheran infant baptism. Uh, (laughs) In the providence of God, your infant baptism did come to fruition. God is true to his promises, so I thank him for that. But at that time, I really was... As I share with the students this morning, a bit of a raging Arminian. I had some friends that were reformed, part of RUF, and they were kind of challenging some of my views, and I was challenging theirs. And uh, I got an invitation to go to a RUF retreat, and there was a, a young man in his late 20s by the name of Mike Horton that was speaking. And I said, who's this surfer guy from California? <laughs> uh, he's... Yeah, we know him. <laughs> And uh, Mike spoke, and uh, I, I can't remember exactly what he was speaking on, but I knew I wanted to ask him some questions about Reformed soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. So I approached him, and he graciously answered a few of my questions. I wasn't completely satisfied with some of the things he had said, but he said, you know, I think if you'll read a book that I wrote not too long ago, it might help you to think through these issues. So he recommended I read Putting Amazing Back Into Grace, which, by the way, not only did I read and not only did it convince me that the Reformed faith really is biblical and the best expression of historic biblical Christianity, but it also has become a resource I've given out to people for 20 years. So I thank God for the work that he did on that book. It's been very helpful. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to the Reverend Dr. John Payne, who is on campus to deliver our annual Dendalk Lectures this year. So you are an Arminian, you encounter Reformed theology through putting amazing back into grace, and you embrace those doctrines of grace. 
How did you get from there to pastoral ministry? How did you decide that not only do I want to be in a Reformed, you know, a Presbyterian or Reformed setting ecclesiastically, but I want to serve those churches as a minister? So after graduating from Clemson, I had been recruited to play for a pro soccer team in Charlotte. Also, I wanted to go to seminary. And so RTS Charlotte became the seminary out of 10. It was only in its second or third year of existence. Dr. Douglas Kelly was there. I was encouraged actually by an evangelist that came through the Baptist church I was associated with at the time and said, when you move to Charlotte, you need to go to RTS Charlotte and you need to go to Christ Covenant Church where Pastor Harry Reeder was the minister. And uh, it was under Dr. Kelly's ministry at the seminary and Harry Reeder's ministry and mentorship at the church that I began to embrace the Reformed faith, not just a Reformed soteriology, but a Reformed ecclesiology, missiology, began to really see the riches of our confessional heritage. Okay. What is it that made you say, I want to be that person that's spending his life in the Word of God, ministering the Word to people? How did you decide that you were called to that? And how did you know that this is something you should do? And the reason I press you on this is because this is the question that every young man, particularly thinking about pastoral ministry, is with which he's wrestling. Yes. So synonymous with my conversion— was desire to be involved in some kind of ministry for right, the rest so of my knew, life. So you knew, the moment you came to faith, you knew, I need to do something with this. Yes. If you would have asked me back then, I probably would have said something like, I want to preach to stadiums of people. I want to have a platform for ministry to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. And really, it was about halfway through a youth ministry position in Peachtree City, Georgia, that I began doing some reading, Daryl Hart and others, that helped me to see that the ordinary means of grace. Preaching of the word, the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. Yes, and the shepherding of God's flock, that these things were not just one spoke in the wheel of ministry, that this was and is the ministry, capital M, and uh, that Christ has one bride, and that's the church, and he has means that he has attached his promises to, and those are called the means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer. And so as my understanding of the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the means of grace began to crystallize, I wanted to do that. I was sensing that, yes, this is what I'm called to do. Now, Harry Reader, I remember him challenging me in his study a couple of years before that, saying, you need to be a pastor. You need to go to pastoral ministry. I thought, ah, no, I'm going to be a seminary professor, or I'm going to write books, or I'm going to preach to stadiums. I'm going to do the real important work. And, (laughs) And what I believe now is there is no more important work than the ministry of word and sacrament. So that's really where my calling began to crystallize was about halfway through my time as a youth pastor. That's not obvious to everyone. I mean, your initial impulse to do something big, something spectacular is an understandable impulse, but it's not obvious when one looks at, you know, the possibilities of how can I serve the Lord, that one of the most important things that one can do for the Lord is to do the counterintuitive, to engage in the ordinary. And being a local pastor is almost the antithesis of being the guy in the stadium or doing big, you know, splashy things for the Lord. There may be a place for that, but the guy who's doing the revival in the stadium isn't visiting you in the hospital. 
He's not catechizing your children. He's not in your home visiting and checking on your spiritual well-being or handing you a piece of bread and a glass of wine and saying, you know, these are the things that the Lord's ordained to strengthen your faith. Yes, and I can say without hesitation that the very things I was a bit afraid of in going into full-time pastoral ministry, the very things that I love the most now, Hmm. preaching funerals, visiting people in times of distress and praying with them and speaking gospel promises into their lives. The listener might not know that there's a strange easiness about preaching at funerals, isn't there? Mm. I mean, yes, it's hard. Someone's died and it's sad and it's especially sad when it's somebody we know. But people are, in a sense, more ready to hear and they're face to face with the final reality of life and that is death. And so you have this little window where you can talk plainly with people about this stuff that it's actually strangely attractive and there's a strange ease about it that you don't even always have on your average Sunday morning in a way, Mm -hmm. which is a thing you wouldn't think that's the case, but it kind of is, isn't it? Yes, it's a powerful time. And I do want to say as well that I think when you begin to properly understand pastoral ministry, your perspective changes. So I'm involved in various things in the wider church, speaking at various things. And I'll say that there's never a time that I am more satisfied in ministry or more fulfilled in ministry than when I'm with my flock. And this past evening, for instance, in our evening worship service, we worship in this little Lutheran chapel that seats about 90 people. And it was packed on Sunday night. That's a beautiful thing, by the way. It's beautiful. And we sang psalms and hymns and we prayed and uh, I preached from Hebrews 11. I'm doing a sermon series on Hebrews chapter 11. And it was just a beautiful time of fellowship. I remember at one moment I looked up and there was a little four-year-old girl who looked at me and kind of smiled. And she's a part of this dear family family in our church. And, you know, she knows her pastor and her pastor knows her. And there's something precious about that intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. That's ministry. It is. So whatever the impulse is to do something big, what Christ has ordained is what you just described. We don't really know that Jesus has actually called anyone to do stadium meetings. Not saying they shouldn't happen, but we know with certainty that Jesus has actually called men to do what you just described. I mean, Scripture actually describes that ministry. Yes. And we have confidence that there are offices described in Scripture, and one of them has that as its essential function. Yes. And to go into a home and to visit a couple in your flock who is struggling with fertility and to read Scripture with them and to pray with them, to walk out of that pastoral visit is more satisfying and fulfilling than preaching to a conference full of you know 500,000 people. You realize both of them are ministry and they're both important, but uh, the one, it's something, I don't know, there's something more authentic about it sure. because you're doing your calling, which is to be a shepherd to your people. You're not called necessarily to go around and speak to other groups of Christians Some of in that same way. Some of you never see again, sure. you don't have a relationship and you don't really know what's going on in their lives and sure. not uh, involved. Again, it's not bad, but there's a priority to the ordinary and to the local and to the ecclesiastical as opposed to the trans-ecclesiastical. So that's a good opportunity to ask about your church in Charleston. 
What did you preach last Sunday evening? Yeah, preached from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. And basically the way I've organized this sermon series is to give kind of biographical vignettes on these various figures from the Old Testament that teach us something of faith. So Noah, of course, the big emphasis there is that faith works. Of course, it was Luther who said that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. And that was one of the big emphases of the sermon is that while faith is a gift of God and faith is given to us at the time of regeneration to receive the imputed righteousness of Christ and to receive his forgiveness and so forth, it's that which is active and it's that which is being exercised your whole life, abiding in Christ and carrying out those good works. And then the whole, of course, conversation about the necessity of works for eternal life, that they're not a part of the grounds of our salvation, but they are a necessary fruit of our salvation because that's what faith produces. True, authentic faith produces good works, some small, some larger. And you've been there for five years, and you just indicated that the building holds 90, and you were full on Sunday evening. So that gives us an idea of the scope of the work. Older congregation, younger congregation? Younger. This past Sunday morning, we probably had 175 to 200, somewhere in there. And I would say most of them would be between 20 and 35. Charleston's a real dynamic area. You've got the College of Charleston, You have a Medical University of South Carolina. You have the Citadel. You have Charleston Southern. We're drawing students from all of those educational institutions. You have Charleston Law School as well. You have the uh, military bases nearby where we draw several families. You have an opportunity to reach people who, some of whom are going to stay, but some of whom are going to go to other places. (laughs) Yes. You get to form them and send them out, as it were. And that's a great joy and a difficulty at times because just the past year, we lost several families, about a dozen, who were wonderful, central members of our church that for various reasons moved away. But then, you know, people move in town and they join us and that's a real blessing. But we see it as an opportunity to be a part of their disciple-making process and to send them away with a more crystallized understanding of the Reformed faith and biblical Christianity. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free. 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Your topic today was piety and being a pastor in the 21st century. And piety is one of those words that we use, maybe particularly in the Reformed world, uh, 
and it's yet kind of a vague word in a sense. Mm. You know, what is it? What does it mean? So when you talk about piety and the Reformed pastor, what do you mean by it? I guess in one sense you could say that piety is abiding in Christ. One references piety in personal terms and in corporate terms. And so a personal piety would be understood as walking with God, like Enoch walked with God and he was taken away. You mean our relationship to God then? Our relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The activity that is related to that, Bible reading, prayer, fasting, fellowship that's connected to that. And a corporate piety would be the gathered church on the Lord's Day. Surely, pastor, since you are a pastor, you must necessarily be pious. Aren't all pastors pious? Why are you talking to pastors about piety? Why aren't you talking to dairy farmers or (laughs) construction workers or bankers or dentists? Aren't they the ones that need to be talked to about piety? I mean, don't pastors pretty much have it all together? Isn't that why they're pastors? And why are you laughing? It's not like you know pastors, do you? One wishes that one would not have to speak about this subject to pastors and to future pastors. Scott, we both have had friends in ministry who have fallen into sin and whose ministries and families and marriages have been wrecked. And their lives sometimes. And their lives by patterns of duplicity, by rank hypocrisy, living one way publicly, preaching sometimes fantastic sermons. Writing very good books. Writing good books and then privately being addicted to porn or other kinds of secret sin. Serial adultery. Yes. And so this matter of pastoral piety is a very important one. And I was speaking to Julius and Joel Kim just a few minutes ago, and we were sort of lamenting about how little this subject is being spoken about. You look on, say, some of the larger evangelical websites, they're pushing a lot of things, but pastoral piety is not at the top of the list about what people are talking about and what ministers are encouraging each other about. I think probably that's because it's at such a low ebb that few ministers even want to talk about it because they themselves are not walking with God in a way that they would think was acceptable, if I can put it that way. There were a lot of things that you could have addressed us about today, tomorrow, and Thursday, and yet you picked these three topics and thinking about them in the context of the 21st century, where we are now, piety, proclamation, and prayer. And even today, you spent some time talking about the nature of prayer and the importance of prayer in the Christian life. So that's obviously an abiding concern. How did you come to have such a pressing concern about piety for the pastor? You know, you're intimating about some cases that the listener may or may not know about, but that you know about, I know about, and there are probably others that you haven't even mentioned. Is that what drives it or what is it that's driving this concern? It's a combination of things. Uh, Certainly, Over the last five or so years, there have been many high-profile cases of men who have fallen into sin and who have wrecked marriages and ministries, and many, many low-profile cases that the public generally is not going to hear about, perhaps you know, the church itself, of course, but then maybe some surrounding churches, but no one else will really know about it. And being in the position that I'm in with the Gospel Reformation Network, for instance, I hear of things regularly, and it's very disheartening. And I think that with the high connectivity of the world the way it is, that there is just more and more opportunity for ministers who don't have a lot of accountability to fall into these kinds of sins. I mentioned it earlier, 
to the student body as well, that with this high connectivity and low accountability and oftentimes pastors getting discouraged in ministry or feeling the pressures of ministry, they will often turn to things to numb the pain. And that might be Netflix, that might be social media, Obviously, these are image-driven mediums, which often lead to pornography. I mean, even sports. You get on ESPN.com, you can be reading about a football story, and right below, there's some what they call eye candy, where you can click on that and begin looking. I mean, they have issues now with you know naked athletes in them yeah. and making it seem acceptable to look at that. And really, it's just soft porn. They call it art. It's soft porn. Well, and it comes for you. I mean, you yes. if you're on social media, you know, the pornographers come after you. It's not like you have to go even looking for it. And not just that, you know, there's less what people might think of as less egregious sins, but sins nonetheless. One of the things I've had to deal with or counsel people about is plagiarism. And not mm. student plagiarism, but ministers plagiarizing sermons, taking sermons from maybe more articulate pastors, sometimes famous preachers, and then preaching them as their own. I know of one church where they let go of a minister because he was involved in plagiarism. They hired another fellow and had to let him go because he was found to be plagiarizing. Yes. And so, yeah, and I really appreciated your note that there's a real temptation for ministers to try to anesthetize themselves through, you know, whatever, whether it's pornography or sex or sports or entertainment, which gets at a fundamental problem. Why do ministers need to anesthetize themselves? I think it's, in a word, it's their identity is not in Christ. It may be in their ministry. And so when their ministries begin to fail or to become highly pressurized, they're not turning to the Lord. They're turning to other things because they want to get away from their ministry, right? So if your identity is wrapped up in your ministry and your ministry starts to fail, you go somewhere else. If your identity is wrapped up in Christ and your ministry starts to struggle, you go to Christ. You ask the question why. I think one is, of course, the things that I've heard and known and friends that have fallen into sin, that's driven some of this, but also my own heart. I know the waywardness of my own heart. And so one cannot help but agree with Calvin that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. And we need to always be guarding our heart. And the Apostle Paul tells us, he exhorts us to watch over our own souls and the souls of the flock. I mean, so we need to recognize, we need to look at ourselves first. And I think that sometimes in the busyness of ministry, the pressures of ministry, the discouragements of ministry, we forget to walk with God. We actually get too busy and distracted to walk with God as Christian ministers. So that would be one reason that you know I wanted to by make that, this case. And by that, you mean to take time, actually, away from the ordinary work of the ministry, part of which is prayer, prayer for the congregation, and part of which is reading and studying Scripture in preparation to feed the congregation. But the minister needs to take some time regularly for himself, for prayer, for devotion, for pouring his heart out to the Lord and allowing the Word to minister to him, which is a fact of ministerial life that you're constantly feeding, and you can, while you're feeding everyone else, forget to feed yourself. Well, there's no question about that. I gave the example of the mom who's helping to get all of her kids fed and she forgets to eat herself. And sometimes even with good intentions, we forget that we need to continue 
to walk with the Lord ourselves and to nurture and cultivate that relationship. We need to be Christians first before we are ministers. We need to be sheep first before we are shepherds. We need to be members of the household first before we are stewards of the household. And on and on you can go with those kinds of examples. The Lord wants our hearts and our lives before he wants our ministry and our service. So that's really the message I wanted to drive home to the students and faculty and all of us, to my own heart. As we labor in ministry, we need to recognize we do have a big target on our backs. Satan's coming after us, and we need to have a wartime mentality. If we are not praying and we're not watching after our own soul and being vigilant, then we do not have a wartime mentality. We think everything's fine and the darts aren't flying, and that's when we're in big trouble. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to John Payne about the piety of the minister in the 21st century. How can ruling elders, members, and other pastors help the pastor? How can pastors help each other to attend to their own piety? Yes, I think there's a mutual accountability that comes in Christian relationships, friendships. I think it's important that we do not hold each other at arm's length. You know, you have your so-called Sunday Christians that come in, worship, leave, give a few slaps on the back, but you're not really making a connection with people and being intentional in terms of asking them how they're doing and asking them how their walk with the Lord is going and, and you know, prying a little bit. That's loving to do. And of course, pastors, we're called to do that as we visit people in our homes. And John Fesco was just sharing with me that uh, when he would make a pastoral visit, he would purposefully not bring his own Bible. And he would ask them to please get their Bible so he could read a few verses from it. And he said, if they couldn't find their Bible, <laughs> he knew that they weren't reading their Bibles. And yeah, how so, long does it take to find that? Yeah. I, yes. It's kind of like the person you ask them if they go to church, they say yes. And you ask them uh, what church they go to and they can't remember the name yeah. of it. You know, they're probably not there too often. Or when you ask someone who their pastor is and they can't name their pastor, yeah. you know, they're probably not too committed to that local congregation. I think it's important that we are involved in each other's lives. Ministers need to recognize, elders need to recognize that it's not just that everyone needs us. We need everyone else. The body of Christ is made up of many members with many gifts, and the pastor needs the gifts of his congregation just as the congregation needs his gifts. Too often the pastor is, I think, walking in some pride, thinking that he is the only one who can give people what they need. No, we need to recognize as we look out onto our congregation on a Sunday morning and we're singing hymns and we're preaching and we're recognizing that we need them as much as they need us. Okay, Pastor, so you have poked us a little bit today, and appropriately so, about the importance of piety and uh, some of the dangers of not attending to piety and what helps uh, create that and facilitate that and what the costs are of not attending to that. And uh, as we bring this discussion to a close, I want you to encourage particularly the pastors who are listening, who are struggling. They're thinking, I think, as I'm thinking, yeah, well, okay, he's right. And it's irritating in some ways, but he's right. And yet it could be just another duty to add to the list. And I don't think that's what you mean. So remind us about what the gospel is. You're part of the Gospel Reformation Network. What is the gospel and how does the gospel free us to be able to give ourselves over to this care for our own souls. You may have heard the illustration of the husband bringing flowers home for his wife, and she says, wow, it's 
not my birthday. It's not my anniversary. What did you do wrong? Why, why, yeah, did you do something wrong? And uh, she's looking in the calendar and she says, why did you buy me these flowers? And the husband responds by saying, well, honey, it's my duty. I'm your husband. I thought I was supposed to do this from time to time. That probably wouldn't go over very well. So don't, don't do that. Yeah, um, husband, yeah, especially you young husbands. Yes. That, that's the wrong thing to say. Yes. Now, another scenario. Same thing, bring flowers home. Honey, it's not my birthday, it's not our anniversary. I, why'd you do this? And the husband responds by saying, because I love you, because you're the greatest woman in the world to me. I cherish you. You're my best friend. That's going to go over better. And hopefully that is your true heart towards your wife. So when it comes to spending time with God, reading your Bible, praying, my own personal devotional life has gotten so much better just in the last couple of months because of a simple change in schedule of getting to bed a little earlier and getting up a little earlier. There are small things we can do, but I don't do it because I'm seeking to earn God's favor and seeking an invitation to heaven through my strivings in my devotional life. I go to my devotion in the morning as a man who is united to Christ by grace through faith who is fully pardoned for all my sins, who is robed in the righteousness of Christ, who has an earnest named the Holy Spirit, who lives in me. And I look forward to that and joyfully anticipate that eternal salvation forever and ever in the presence of my Lord. And I come to him in the morning, not because I'm trying to earn something from him, but because I'm in Christ and I love him. And this is, I think, the heart of David in Psalm 63, where he says that he longs to be with the Lord, like a glass of cold water in a desert. And there's a sense, too, in which we feel God's protection and we're putting on the spiritual armor of God as we go before, boldly before the throne of grace and cry out to him. We come to the throne of grace through the blood and righteousness of Christ. We know we're safe in him. So when we come to him in our disciplines of grace, as it were, our patterns of piety. We do so not as those who are doing it simply out of duty or out of guilt, but we do it out of love, love for our God, love for our Savior, wanting to be with him, wanting to be in his presence. Uh, let's admit it. We're all very distracted throughout the day with a hundred things going on. Pastors are flooded with all kinds of things, texts, emails, calls, responsibilities, hospital visits, sermon prep, and I can go on and on and on. And I think especially at the beginning of the day, if at all possible, it's a great time to be still and to know that he is God and to pour out our souls to him in prayer and to receive his promises and to preach his promises into our own soul. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your trust in God. And that's something that I think pastors need as much or more than anybody else because of the targets that are on our backs. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.